Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 20th, 2010. Hang on to your hats. It's going to be a long program today. And if if you don't wear hats, you know, put on a helmet. Or um, if you don't have a helmet, put on a safety belt. Or um, (sighs) the metaphors just don't work. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of, well, crazy things being said about God. And while we do the politically incorrect work of taking that stuff on. God in Exodus chapter 20, in uh, in, t- in verse 7 to be exact, um, said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, people nowadays, for whatever reason, think that that somehow is only committed. Taking God's name in vain is only committed when someone says, OMG. Yeah, that's like the least of our worries when it comes to taking God's name in vain. In fact, what amazes me is that the parents uh, that parents would punish their children for taking God's name in vain while sitting through an entire Sunday sermon that does nothing but take God's name in vain because the primary way in which people take God's name in vain is to teach false doctrine to teach falsely what uh, what God is all about what he demands of us what he expects of us what he will do for us and instead of preaching and teaching uh, God's word correctly, they feel that they have, well, uh, you know, an inside track with God that allows them to teach stuff that ain't never been heard nowhere, no how, by nobody, nowhere, and as if that's from God. Uh, That's not from God. So we compare what people say in the name of God to the word of God, and you'll notice as you listen to this program uh, that the primary people that we do the comparative work with are those who are pastors and Christian authors and 
Christian, popular Christian teachers, some of them not so popular. But that, the problem at the moment seems to reside in the pulpits, in the leadership. And uh, those of us who would dare to say, wait a second, God's Word doesn't say that, uh, they marginalize us, push us to the side, and basically accuse us of being divisive, being narrow-minded, bigoted, of loving theology more than loving God, and bizarre, crazy things like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you're going to open up your mouth and claim to be speaking for God, then what comes out of your mouth had better be from God. Now, I know the Bible is from God. How do I know this? Because Christ, Jesus, who was God in human flesh, put his stamp of approval on it. He affirmed it as God's word. He affirmed the teaching of the apostles as the word of God as well. That being the case, I trust Jesus. So those words that Jesus has put a stamp of approval on, by the way, he died and rose again on the third day, tough to beat those credentials. Yeah, I don't care how many PhDs you have attached to your name. Um, if what you say in the name of scholarship contradicts Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Seriously. You know, he, he's God in human flesh, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead, and you're going to claim that your PhD from your liberal, uh, higher critical uh, university is supposed to trump Jesus? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I'm going with Jesus. You and your higher critical scholarship can, well, it can go by the way of the devil. You know, <laughs> it's that's not from God. I trust Jesus. So when see that's the thing, God's word has this amazing ability to pen us in. Isn't that what we are though, sheep? See, Jesus doesn't put us in a box. He puts us in a sheep pen to protect us. And lots of people hate the sheep pen because it doesn't give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do and then call it God or say it's from God. For instance, Christ's sheep pen is fenced off in such a way that his sheep are protected against homosexual perversion. Homosexual perversion is not included in Christ's sheep pen. And there are those today in the modern world, in the postmodern world, who think that's just terrible. And so they claim that Christ's sheep pen is so big and that uh, truth is not knowable in all those areas where God's word is fenced off to protect us. Because, by the way, sin is slavery. Sin is not freedom. Only in our wicked and sinful condition would we dare to be so perverted as to think that sinning is something that we get to do. Sin is not freedom. Sl sin is slavery. Disobeying God is slavery. Jesus didn't come and die on the cross so that we can continue to be slaves to sin. He died on the cross for our sins, to propitiate God's wrath against our sins. He didn't come so that we can be free to just sin like crazy. 
In fact, our sin was conquered by Christ, by his death and resurrection on the cross. He's, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not that we would continue to live in slavery to sin, but we've been set free from it. We've been called to live in that freedom. And when we sin, we have a mediator, Christ, who intercedes on our behalf. And when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written for our benefit. So the, the postmodern liberal scholars hate the fences, hate where the, the, sheet, the, the demarcation of the sheep pen is. But those, the demarcation of the sheep pen is, is designed in such a way to protect us, to keep us from being enslaved again to sin. And they say, oh, that's terrible. You, you're putting God in a box. No, we're not putting God in a box. God has put us in his sheep pen, plain and simple, and it's to protect us. And so we go with what God's word says, knowing and trusting our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Our good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, who protects us who loves us, died for our sins. I trust the good shepherd. Those other guys, they smell and act and behave not like sheep, but wolves. You can hear their growls. You can see their teeth, even though they're dressed up in sheepy-looking type costumes. And so one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith is well, we remove the sheep costume so that you can see what's really going on. And people, some people don't like that. And that's too bad. <laughs> okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got a, a number two in Ed Stetzer's uh, series called A Call for Contextualization. I, I want to read that to you. And I, I, I am absolutely... You know, <sighs> this is not going to sound flattering at all. I, I think Ed Setzer's a bureaucrat. I mean, I, as I read his stuff, I mean, seriously, I've, I've, I've run across bureaucrats before in my lifetime, uh, both in the corporate world. I've seen them in the government agencies. And these are people who, um, for whatever reason, if you've seen the, uh, if you've read the, actually not seen, if you've seen the movie or read the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, think Vogons. Vogons, you know what? They they have all this elaborate paperwork and and all this important stuff that you've got to fill out in order to kind of you know, and with that that justifies their existence. I, I'm thinking Ed Stetzer's a bureaucrat, and I'm listening, I'm reading his stuff and sitting there going, this is ridiculously. I mean, you you're you're making this more complex than it is, Ed, and uh, so we'll be looking at that, and then um. Is it Jason Coyle? I th yeah, Jason Coyle on my uh, Facebook wall left a uh, <laughs> link to a video to a guy by the name of Final Call Zero Seven on YouTube. His, that's his handle, Final Call Zero Seven. That's his handle on YouTube. And I kid you not, this guy uses the Bible to warn people about biblical knowledge. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> See. <laughs> 
You've got to hear it to believe. Oh, man. Oh, talk about self-defeating propositions. Good night. And then uh, Bobby Connor of the uh, extreme ex- prophetic XP media gang. Um, he's got he's going to regale us with some more stories of his of angelic invita- uh, visitations. Yes, he's had angelic visitations. And so we'll be listening to uh, Bobby Connor uh, wax eloquent as he tells us and regales us with his amazing stories of angelic visitations at his home in the woods. And then uh, here's something kind of bizarre that came up on, on my radar. Um, John Piper. Uh, we got audio from a video of John Piper claiming to have a prophetic word to uh, you folk in the... Um, Calvinist reformed camps. And uh, we're going to do what the Bible says. The Bible says don't despise prophecies, but we're to test them. And so we're going to take this prophetic word from John Piper. And in the video, you're going to hear him say he has a prophetic word. Okay. And we're going to test it against God's word. And we need to come to a conclusion, we need to make a decision. Did God really say this to John Piper to speak to the church or not? When somebody steps into the realm of claiming to get direct revelation from God and that they're claiming to speak a prophetic word, they are saying, thus saith the Lord, then um, we uh, as a church must test the prophecy to see if it squares with the teaching of God's word. And uh, I'll leave part of that job up to you, but uh, I I have my own thoughts on the matter. And then in the second hour today, um, it's going to be a long sermon review. I apologize. It's necessary. The name of the sermon I'll be reviewing in hour number two is called The Power of a Dream. And it's by David Benson of Grace Creek Church in Longview, Texas. And um, the power of a dream. And I'm going to ask the question at the beginning of the sermon. In fact, I'll prep you right now. Here's the question I would like you to, as you're listening to the sermon, answer this question. How does this sermon contribute to the fulfillment of the task given to us by Jesus in Matthew 28 of going and making disciples, and teaching them all that I commanded you. Okay? Um, so the I read that text from Matthew 28, basically saying that Jesus is giving a command to the apostles to, uh, as they make disciples, to teach the full counsel of what Christ said and taught, and uh, and ultimately the full counsel of the word of god because jesus is god in human flesh and when the god of the old testament is speaking that's jesus speaking same god so um i i really see this as a command as part of discipleship to teach the full counsel of the word of god so here's the question that i'm going to be asking in the sermon is how does this sermon uh, contribute to fulfilling the task given to the church of making disciples and proclaiming the full counsel of the word of God or all that Jesus commanded. This is going to be important stuff. So, um, so we've got lots and lots to, of stuff to do today. And, uh, so with that, let's dive into the program proper. And, uh, that requires me to play my, um, vintage news music. 
Okay, uh, from the edstetzer.com blog. This is also uh, published over at the Christian Post website. From June 28, 2010, I'm a little bit behind. Calling for contextualization part two, the need to contend and contextualize. Now, Ed Stetzer, he's a missiologist. And as I read his stuff, I the thing I'm struck with is like, it's like, duh. I mean, I don't see this as profound or earth-shattering. Um, and I think he's like making this way harder than it really is. Let me, let me read it a little bit, and I think you'll kind of get what I'm talking about. Last week, uh, we started this Calling for Contextualization series at the blog, and the folks at the Christian Post are carrying the series here, and there's a link. Today we talk more about the danger and necessity of contextualization and engaging culture. One of the first issues has to be what is contextualized and what is not. Evangelical Christians do not believe everything is culturally determined and formed, though we humans do perceive our world through a cultural lens. Okay. There are some things that we consider eternal and unchanging, such as the nature of the, of God and biblical revelation. Thus, the gospel is generally not something that most evangelicals want to contextualize. Though they may say contextualize the gospel, they may tend to mean its communication rather than its content. Evangelicals tend to believe that we don't change the gospel because we don't own the gospel. Okay, We don't change or alter the gospel because the gospel is history. Mm-hmm. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that rescues sinful humanity from eternal ruin. Okay, won't quibble with that. Thus, evangelical believers don't need to say that they want to, quote, make the Bible relevant or make God relevant. They already are, though I will address issues of Bible translation in the series. Yet contextualization matters because we are not eternal, timeless, and acultural. Some of the ways we worship, how we present eternal truths, and how we live in and relate to society must be considered. We live in a culture. How we see things, understand them, and present them to others must take culture into account. And we encounter Christianity in culture. Walls explains, no one ever meets universal Christianity in itself. We only ever meet Christianity in a local form that means a historical, culturally conditioned form. Who's this Walls character, and where did this person find this out? Um, I don't see this in the Scripture. We need not fear this. When God became a man, he became historically, culturally conditioned man in a particular time and place. What he became, we need not fear to be. There is nothing wrong in having local forms of Christianity, provided we remember that they are local. A. Walls, the missionary movement in Christian history, studies in the transmission of the faith. Uh, From 1936, published, uh, 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 this is page 235. Um, What if I disagree with Walls? Um, Let me put it this way. Okay. In the Gospels themselves, okay, um, when we read the biblical Gospels, one of the things that comes out clearly is that some of the Gospels were written for different audiences. Matthew really looks like it was written for a Jewish audience. 
there are things in Matthew's gospel that if you understand first century Judaism, and well, not just first century Judaism, I, I really need to correct that. If you understand historic Judaism and you are very well versed in the in the salvation history recorded in the Old Testament, you are really well versed in the Old Testament texts, and you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Joshua, Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you know the stories of the exile and uh, into Babylon. If you really understand your Old Testament, it's impossible to miss what's going on in the book of Matthew. There are, it's as if Matthew is purposely showing that Jesus is the, is the real true fulfillment of, uh, of, of, of Israel. He lives the life of Israel in a microcosm in the gospel of Matthew in such a way that you, you, you would, you can't miss it. Now, when you read other gospels, such as the gospel of Luke or the gospel of Mark, it's very clear that the audience that was that was that these things were these gospels were written to were gentile. The way we know that is that things that would be assumed to a Hebrew mind are explained to in, in these gospels, okay? You know, they explain things that if you don't, if you're a gentile and you you really don't understand Judaism, and they explain why Jesus said a particular thing or why a certain thing was done a particular way or uh, or what a particular thing is. They take the time to say, here's, uh, uh, you know, by the way, this is what this is. Read through the Gospels, uh, Gospels of Luke and Mark, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The idea there is, is that the Gospel writers took into consideration that they had Gentile audiences that were primarily the ones reading these gospel accounts and you know what they did when there might be something they didn't understand they just took the time to quickly almost in a footnote like fashion say here's what this is and they you know translate it and then just moved right on the primary assumption in the gospels of mark and luke though is that any human being regardless of culture can understand the storyline without any contextualization. These were human beings who witnessed the a person by the name of Jesus Christ claiming to be God in human flesh, performing miracles, crucified on a Roman cross, and raised again on the third day. The, and the, these Gospels were not written... And at a you know college level reading level either, they were written very common Koine Greek. Luke's is a little bit better, and Paul's is pretty darn good. But uh, you, the idea is that if you can read or you can listen, if you can read or listen, you can get it. You can hear it and you can understand it. And where you're thinking, oh, what's that thing? Uh, that's something that's particular to Judaism in the first century. They just quickly explained it, and then, oh, okay, and then moved on. There's not a lot of cultural translation going on in the Gospels. And yet there was a huge cultural divide between 
Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Huge cultural divide. And yet, the gospel, the gospels themselves do take some effort, but little effort, to culturally and contextualize this stuff. It's written in Koine Greek so that it can get around to everybody everywhere, which was the lingua franca of uh, of the uh, Mediterranean first century world. I guess that's a form of contextualization. Put it into a language that somebody can understand. But aside from that, very little cultural translation is going on. Very little. Because the historical stories themselves don't need to be contextualized. They need to be proclaimed. The story needs to be told. Let me continue with Ed Stetzer's piece. It's odd for me to hear people say we should not worry about culture. It seems like a fish saying we should not worry about water. You live in water, thus you have to redefine the the term culture to say that it must be avoided and not engaged. Again, see the last entry in how evangelicals define culture. The scriptures clearly teach us that there are things that are true and transcend particular cultures and time, yet the scriptures also model for us the need to address cultural realities. In Mission Shift, Mission Issues for the Third Millennium, I explain, I suggest that we return to first century thinking. What we find in the New Testament is that to be biblical requires contextualization. I, I, Ed, I don't see it. It, it, it. Yeah, there's some cultural translation going on, like I said, in the Gospel of Mark and Luke. Even in John's Gospel, there's that going on too, but very little of it. Dean Fleming developed uh, this point in contextualization in the New Testament. He argues, Scripture itself can offer us a more adequate approach to the challenge of reappropriating the gospel. What does that word even mean? Reappropriating the gospel? What does that mean? I don't... Where does the Bible talk about its need to have the gospel reappropriated? Because each book of the New Testament represents an attempt by the authors to present the Christian message in a way that is targeted for a particular audience within a socio-cultural environment. Are we really that much so far different than uh, the first century uh, human beings that we can't get it? We, and we understand mothers and sons, daughters and brothers. We get miracles. Jesus' teachings make sense. I mean, seriously, I, I think this is a much to do about nothing. Thus, we must acknowledge there are eternal and transcultural truths, but also changing cultural realities to be considered. Sometimes those two tasks feel as if they are in opposition to another, but it is wrestling through that very tension that will help us help to keep us sharp and effective in whatever mission field God has uh, sent has sent us. By the way, I was having a uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Irving Hexham of the University of Calgary in uh, in uh, Canada. And uh, Dr. Irving Hexham is uh, tracking down a doctoral dissertation that was done maybe about 20 years ago and which he helped uh, advise on. And Dr. Hexham says that in this doctoral dissertation, and I, I've got to find this thing, uh, there was data that was done on uh, mission on, on effectiveness of missions uh, down in like South America. I think it was Brazil. And what happened is is that they they studied two different groups. Okay, 
one group of missionaries were pretty much people who had no idea how to contextualize the gospel at all. You know, they just went out and proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And when it came to cultural contextualization, they were complete plebes. I mean, you ask, if you were to ask them about cultural contextualization, they'd give you a blank stare and go, huh? What's that? Okay. The other group were people who were into cu- cultural contextualization and trying to contextualize the gospel and all that kind of stuff. And according to Dr. Irving Hexham, this dissertation, which we're trying to track down right now, um, uh, the, the hard data showed that the people who didn't even understand what contextualization is were far more effective, like ridiculously, measurably far more effective at, uh, at conversion and, and achieving their mission uh, than uh, the people who were trying to contextualize it. something to think about. I got to find this dissertation. But I I think that makes perfect sense because here's the deal. Okay? If you were to send me to South America and uh say Roseboro, we want you to uh, be a street preacher in South America and preach the gospel. The one thing that I would absolutely be required to do is to relearn Spanish. I took Spanish when I was in high school, but I made sure to promptly forget Spanish after I graduated from high school. Um, So I would have to relearn Spanish in order to communicate the gospel in the language that people understand down there, plain and simple, or get a translator, okay? But I wouldn't do anything differently in communicating the gospel to people in South America than the way I communicate the gospel to you all here on the air. Why? Because... What I'm doing is teaching what God's Word says. And as long as you understand the language that I'm speaking, I it would be impossible for me to contextualize this program for all the different subcultures of people who are listening. I explained this when we played, uh, when I last talked about this, I played a sermon by Dr. Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I've never met the man. I've communicated to him via email, but he lives in in in, in Great Britain, Hanley, Stoke on Trent. I've never, I don't even know what that means. I, I mean, I don't know if Pastor Charmley, uh, what kind of music he likes. He's grown up in a completely different cultural context, yet he communicates the gospel brilliantly to me and to you. I wouldn't have played it otherwise. I, I. I really think this this whole missiology thing is smoke and mirrors. It's bureaucracy. It's people basically making things more complicated than they really are in order to justify their existence. Quit second-guessing. I mean, seriously, I would end up chasing my tail in a thousand different directions if I believed in this stuff because I would go, go to a biblical text and say, oh, boy, whew. Here I've got this biblical text, and how am I supposed to make the people in this culture understand what it means? Oh, read it. If anyone has a question, they'll raise their hand. If they raise their hand and they ask a question and and you find out that culture's the thing that's getting in the way, 
understand enough about first century Christianity and Old Testament Judaism and culture to be able to explain it. But, I mean, for the most part, people are capable of getting these things. I just, why are we adding this complex layer of words and ideas that I don't even think are necessary? Uh, maybe I'm wrong. If I am, email me. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged 
with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR, or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, you don't need to overcomplicate cultural missiology and contextualization to preach the gospel. Open the book, start preaching it. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission and work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button 
or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, you know, I this next segment, uh, well, here, I think this is the appropriate music. Now you're thinking, that's the music you use for Patricia King. Yeah, Fractured Fairy Tales. I I think I think need to work on something for, like, the section when people say things that are spiritually self-defeating. Anyway, this uh, gentleman on uh, YouTube goes by the name of Final Call 07. And he looks like Gimli from uh, The Lord of the Rings. And... Uh, Thanks to Jason Coyle and uh, the heads up he gave me on this guy. Whew. Uh, we won't play all of this because this is 10 minutes and 23 seconds. But the um, the name of this uh, thing is Bible Knowledge Can Be Dangerous at, or Bible Knowledge is Lethal. Here we go. You ready? Here is Final Call 07 proving to us that Bible Knowledge is Lethal. I want to talk to you about two types of knowledge today. The one is Bible knowledge, and the other one is knowledge of God, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. The one is death, the other is life. Yeah, death, life, yeah, huh? Um, where do I get knowledge of God so that I don't die? Bible knowledge is death, my friend. Oh, okay. So I can't go to the Bible to get knowledge about God, because that would kill me. The letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. Hang on a second here. Um, I'm doing a Google search now. The letter killeth. Now, that's a funny way of... Um, saying things um mhm yeah second corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 hang on i i actually do have a copy second corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 i do have a copy of the king james on my electronic bible here <clears throat> let me see okay uh well um mhm okay here it yeah here second corinthians chapter 3 added a little context here um, and such trust ha have we through Christ to uh, God word, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of, as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Well, well um, <clears throat> final uh, call. Uh, zero seven. I just have a quick question for you. Um, if Bible knowledge kills us and uh, is is lethal and dangerous, um, then why were you quoting the Bible? You you, you see the problem there. Um, apparently, you are relying on biblical knowledge to. Tell us that the that biblical knowledge is dangerous. Um, we call this a self-defeating proposition. 
You see, if now, in order to prove to us that Bible knowledge is lethal and Bible knowledge is dangerous and that the only way we can truly know God is without our Bibles, then um, you can't use the Bible to make your point. Those are the rules. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, George Ellerick, a few weeks ago, George Ellerick uh, was talking about uh, wordless theology. And, uh, you know, I recommended that he stop writing words and practice what he was preaching and get on to the wordless theology and stop using words to write about God immediately. Uh, He didn't take too kindly to those comments. But, um, yeah, see, this kind of falls into the category of um, self-defeating proposition. Jesus Christ is the spirit. The Bible is the letter. That is death. Oh, yeah, but you just quoted the Bible to me. So are you trying to kill me with it? Well, I don't understand. The Bible is used by people to destroy each other. Mm, yeah. If you drive past a church, that is testimony to what Bible knowledge does. It yeah. causes division. Because people devise doctrines. People devise doctrines. Well, actually, there are people who do devise doctrines. And see, that's the thing. Any Christian theologian, any true Christian uh, pastor or teacher understands that their, their job is not to devise doctrines, but to pass along faithfully the doctrines of the historic Christian faith without altering them or changing them. And they build Bible schools around the doctrines and around Bible knowledge. Yeah, that's terrible. It's killing people. You know, it's funny. You're teaching people here about Bible knowledge, using biblical knowledge to prove that Bible knowledge is bad. You can almost make a case here that uh, you're trying to gather for yourself, you know, students who believe what you teach about the Bible. And aren't you beating people up and dividing over? Yeah. You see, the problem here is that um, the thing that he is judging people by is the very thing that he's guilty of. Yeah, hypocrisy, irony on the highest level, and just plain silliness. Moving along, um, here is, um, well, Bobby Connor, who's known from time to time to spin some pretty colorful yarns, uh, telling us about the end-time angels who've come and visited him at his home. Let me tell you a story. This is a wonderful true story. I live up in the mountains of North Carolina. Yeah, you said that in a previous video. Yeah, uh-huh. And, uh, we, and by the way, I like the flannel shirt. We have uh, these encounters with God. The Moravians kicked the open heaven there. Way back in the 1700s, Count Zinzendorf and the people from Herna, they got the land there, and they, it's really a, a wonderful place there. But I'm up there on my porch, and I'm typing, getting revelation, and the wind's blowing softly through the trees. It's a gorgeous day, and I'm, I'm sitting there typing, and I've got some wind chimes hanging on my porch, and my porch is about 14 to 18 feet off the ground, and so I'm just having a great day. It's one of those days, and I'm typing. The wind chimes are making such a gorgeous sound over there, and so all of a sudden, I just realized that I realized that the wind was still blowing, but my chimes were silent. So I quit typing, turned my head from the computer, and I looked over here, and lo and behold, so help me, there's an angel, an angel from God. And he's 
in air up about 12 to 14 feet off the ground. He has my wind chimes in his hand just like this. He's over there holding them just like this. And he looks at me to make sure he's got my attention, smiles at me just like that, and turns the wind chimes loose. And so help me God, the wind chimes on my porch begin to play the old hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And this angel said, the body of Christ is going to learn more about the majesty of the Master than we've known in all of our lifetime. I want to... Really? Uh-huh. Even if we or an angel from heaven should come to you preaching a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be eternally condemned. Wow, that's quite a musical angel that you've got there. Tell us more, please. Let me tell you something. If you want a Bible study right now that will change your whole life, study the book of Colossians. Right now, there's more heavenly oil on the book of Colossians teaching us about the majesty of the Master than any other book in the whole Bible, I think. So <laughs> This is kind of an irony. funny thing here is, is that the book of Colossians actually writes against this type of heresy. But there's more oil on, and you, by the way, I don't like it when there's oil on my Bible. I just, you know, when I'm reading a book, you know, I of the Bible, I find that if there's oil on it, that just kind of gets in the way, and I have to scrape it off because, you know, it it distorts the words. I prefer completely oil-free Bibles. Yourself, how about you? That's what that angel was saying. So uh, I'm going to encourage you to ask for angelic visitation. Ask for these beings from another world to come and speak to you and talk to you. They want to come from the presence of God and illuminate us into this world that we're living in. I'll tell really, where does the Bible say that, Bobby? Another angelic experience I had, if you'd like to hear it. Here's what happened to me. Oh, please, too. I mean, you've already regaled us with one angelic story. Why not another? Uh, I'm up there at my house in Moravian Falls, and I'm, it's a very uh, a rainy day that day, and the clouds are really low, very poor visibility, mist everywhere in the air, and I'm sitting out on the porch, and I'm having some tea, reading the Bible, and I hear what I think is a jet airplane. Now, in your mind, now, I want you to hear like if you're on the runway of an airport, and this jet's tacking up, and I hear it coming, I thought, oh my Lord, who in their right mind would fly that low this kind of weather? So I, I set the tee down, I get up, I walk over there to the west side of my porch, and I'm watching now, remember, it's hazy, cloudy, the clouds are low on the mountain, and I, I'm expecting any moment now uh, uh, a plane to burst through the clouds. Now, it's, I can hear it coming, roar, and guess what? Something bursts through the clouds, but it's not a plane. It's an angel from heaven. And he unfurls like just like this, about 50 feet up in the air. And here's what he says. There so, angels are jet-powered. Very distinctly, very bold, very authoritative. He said, prepare the chariot of the king. And I, I was going to ask him what he meant. Then he said, prepare the king's chariot. Those two statements, prepare the chariot of the king and prepare the king's chariot. And he left just like that. So I'm yeah, you better go quick, find a chariot standing there going, wow. And I want to tell you something. It's taken me a long... Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about preparing the people of God. You're a vehicle that's going to bring in the glory of God. You are the chariot of the king. You are. You're a living chariot for the king to come in. And I'm telling you, he's calling for you. He's calling for you to clean up your heart, clean up your life. 
why would the king be calling for me to clean up my heart and clean up my life when my sins, uh, though they be as scarlet, are made white as snow through the blood of the lamb who was slain? The scriptures doesn't, they don't teach us to clean ourselves up, but that we are cleaned through the blood of Christ. Hmm, why do I feel like this guy's just not telling me the truth? Hmm, I know, because he's not. <laughs> Moving along. Okay, next video. This one's going to be controversial. I apologize. It needs to be done. Okay. And uh, let me set the framework for this by reading to you a passage of scripture from the book of, uh, of, uh, is it First Thessalonians? Yeah. First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. And, uh, for context sake, I'm going to, um, let's see here. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 14. Um, it says this, uh, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every kind of evil. Okay, so First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Now, Strange things are happening in the new Calvinist camp, okay? Um, one of the strange things that's happening in the new Calvinist camp, the young Calvinists, is they're mixing um, mysticism and, in some cases, uh, charismata uh, with, with uh, Calvinism. Now, we've got to be real careful here, okay? And the reason why we have to be real careful is because Calvinists, although I'm not one, historically are affirm sola scriptura. Now, that's not to say God can't speak to us, okay? But we have to be very, 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 very careful and discerning when somebody claims to be getting a prophetic word from God. That being the case, Dr. John Piper recently on a Desiring God Ask Pastor John segment, claimed that he had a prophetic word to give to his audience. Okay? We're going to test it. Here's Dr. John Piper. John, would there be any cautions that you would have for this new Reformed, new Calvinist movement you referenced earlier? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'll give you one that's just fresh off a, a prophetic word that was given to me yesterday. Okay, so there's the head up. heads up. What you're about to hear is a prophetic word directly from God given to John Piper. 
Um, you know, take it, take it or leave it for whatever. I, I, I'm cautious about things when people come to me with these kinds of things, but, uh, but it, it rung true, and you can get... Okay, so apparently it was a prophetic word somebody else delivered to John Piper. Okay, that sounds fine. Let's test this. Without, you know, having any claim to special divine authority. Making theology God instead of God, God. Loving doing theology rather than loving God. Somebody said to me one time, Sam Crabtree, it was. Hi, Sam, if you're there. Uh, the danger of the contemporary worship awakening is that we love loving God more than we love God. That was very profound. And you might love thinking about God more than you love God. Or arguing for God more than you love God. Or defending God more than you love God. Or writing about God more than you love God. Or preaching more than you love God. Or evangelizing more than you love God. Reformed people tend to be thoughtful. That is, they come to the Bible and they uh, want to use their minds to make sense of it. And, and the best want to make sense of all of it, not pick and choose and say, I don't like that verse. That sounds like an Arminian verse. We'll put that over here. Well, no, no. You fix your brain. You don't fix the Bible. So um, being that kind of person that we're, we're prone to, to, to systematize and fit things together, um, those kinds of people, me, are therefore wired dangerously to begin to idolize the system, idolize the and I don't want to go here too much because I think the whiplash starts to swing the other direction. And so minimize system and minimize thinking and minimize doctrine that we start losing a foothold in, in the Bible. So that would be a, a big caution that we be intellectually and emotionally more engaged with the person of Christ, the person of God, the Trinity, than we are with thinking about him. And they are inextricably woven. But, but the reason you're reading the Bible and the reason you're framing thoughts about God from the Bible is to make your way through those thoughts to the real person. The, the, the danger of those who do the other thing, namely all that intellectual stuff, no, 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 doctrine, no, intellect, no, study, no, experience, yes, is that they wind up worshiping a God of their own imagination. It feels so right, it feels so free, and feels so humble because they're not getting involved in all those debates. But it isn't. It's, it's, it's losing their grip on reality. We are, we are compelled to, to, to go there. So hand in glove with that is pride. Not just, I mean, that, that is a species of pride. When I say there are many species of pride, that's just one of them. You can call it intellectualism. If you want, there's emotionalism over there. That's not the danger right now. Intellectualism is a species of, of pride because we begin to. So emotionalism isn't the danger right now? Really? Hmm. Now, <clears throat> I just want to point a couple of things out. Um, as a Lutheran, I, I have a different way of looking at what I just heard. Number one. Okay. When we talk about loving something more than God, we're talking about breaking the first commandment, okay? You shall have no other gods before me, none, okay? 
that being the case, here's the, the problem that I have with this prophetic word. The prophecy is um, not precise. And you're sitting there going, well, I thought I heard him say that, um, you know, making, you know, trusting in your theology more than trusting in God. Can you give me an example of that, please? I need a clear example of this dangerous idea of basically loving theology more than you love God. Now, it's possible, okay? Absolutely possible. And it's probably probable that people do this, okay? But I come back to, in our, in, well, in my church, we weekly confess out loud in front of everybody collectively and as individuals that we do not love God with our whole heart and we do not love our neighbors as ourselves. That being the case, we all do these things and the way you combat this sin is by giving specific examples of when you take theology and exalt it into the place of God where you fear love and trust in your theology about God more than you do God. Now, the reality is is that right now in our day and age, emotionalism and mysticism are the big danger, not the big danger is not that somebody, you know, worships their systematic theology. That's uh, systematic theology is under attack. Thought is under attack. God's word is under attack. And so as somebody who is a theologian and a Lutheran, I listen to this and I sit there and go, if I were to basically take this as a true word from God, I would end up chasing my tail constantly in fear that, oh, no, am I, am I, am I, believe, am I loving the Bible more than I love God? Am, am I loving my theology more than I am loving God? I don't have a theology. I don't have a system. I have a theology and doctrinal confessions that I subscribe to, but it's not mine. And it's distilled from the scriptures. And it's not mine. And they point me to God and they point me to Christ. The only times, really, I mean, if you really want to get specific, the times when you love your theological system and you turn it into an idol, into an idol is when that theological system competes with and teaches things that are contrary to God's word. That's when a theological and doctrinal system becomes idolatrous. So I'm listening to this so-called prophetic word that uh, Pastor Piper is passing along, and I'm thinking, if this is really from God, then I think I would be getting um, specifics from God as to how this is idolatry, you know, specific, maybe specific people, specific instances, a clear examples of how this is the case. Instead, I'm sitting here going, oh, boy, this is profound. I, I, I don't want to make my theology God, um, but theology are words about God. So um, I, what happens if I turn words about God into, into an idol? But those words point me to God. So, but, so I, can I trust theology or can I not trust it? Oh, no, what if I'm, I, what if I'm guilty of, of, of committing the sin of idolatry? Of, of... Confess your sin. Be forgiven. Move on. Confess your sin, be forgiven, 
Keep working in theology and God's Word and using your brain and asking God to sanctify you and to correct you. Yes, you are going to be guilty of times of loving your elaborate system or something that you've written or something that you've done more than you do God. When that happens, it's idolatry. Repent. But this is not what I heard in this so-called prophecy. It was very vague and not specific. And not only that, I think Dr. Piper got it 180 degrees wrong. Emotionalism, not intellectualism, is the danger in the church right now. What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you would like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time when we get back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of the sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? 
Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Our numero dos, number two, here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh oh. I'm slipping into really bad voice impersonation. Wonder what this means. All right, it is time for us to queue up the the dreaded and well much anticipated sermon review music. Maestro, hit it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Creek Church, Longview, Texas. Pastor David Benson. Sermon entitled, The Power of a Dream. As we listen to this sermon by Pastor David Benson, ask yourself this question. How does this sermon contribute to fulfilling the task of making disciples as given by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28? I begin at verse 18. Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all, all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does this, how does this sermon contribute to fulfilling that task? Is this the sermon of a man who is committed to faithfully proclaiming the entire full counsel of the Word of God? Or 
cherry-picking verses out of context and inspiring you with platitudes and affirmations. You decide. By the way, the full counsel of the Word of God, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. So whenever God is speaking in the Old Testament, that's Jesus. And you're thinking, well, what, is it, what, if, what if it was the Father speaking? Well, yeah. Now, I'm not a modalist, but I don't think that there would be a disagreement between Jesus and the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So when God the Father is speaking, or God... The Holy Spirit is speaking in the Old Testament. Jesus, being the one true God, along with the two other persons of the Holy Trinity, wouldn't disagree with the message or the actions taken by Yahweh, because he is Yahweh. With that, let's dive into our sermon. Here is Pastor David Benson, Grace Creek Church, Longview, Texas, The Power of a Dream. to another encouraging message from Executive Pastor David Benson. The power of a dream. Good morning, everyone, again. Morning. How are you all doing this morning? Great. Thanks for asking. Good. You got plans for this afternoon? Yeah, I'm hoping to play I some disc so. golf. I hope so. It's yeah. sunny. It's Memorial Day weekend. Summer's here. Kids are out of school, right? Oh, parents say. All right. Well, I want to talk to you this morning, obviously, about the power of a dream. But I want to pause you just a thought for a moment. What, what would it be like if, I know this is the second service, but what happens if I hadn't got prepared? I'd got up late and I'd kind of come and I hadn't done any studying and, and I hadn't got before the Lord and, and I, I'm up here fumbling, looking for which page I can perhaps get something out of. And perhaps you'd start looking at each other and think, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? you start feeling sorry for me. But it'd be awkward, right? It'd be kind of, whoa, what's going on? But you know what? The real tragedy is that many people go through life just like that. Stumbling around with no real plan, just living from day to day, doing the day as it affects them and reaches them. And they just do whatever they need to do without preparing. No passion in their lives. Um, where is this um, idea taught in Scripture? No, I understand. It's, you know, it, you know it, we should prepare, we should plan and effectively manage our lives. But understanding that, I mean, each day is given to us a day at a time, and we can't even guarantee that tomorrow is going to be here uh, for us. But, um, you know, I'm going to introduce you all to, you all remember the uh, the now concluded television show on Fox 24 with Jack Bauer and and. and those guys. Well, um, I'm going to uh, borrow uh, Jack Bauer's uh, countdown clock. And uh, we are officially, the, this uh, sermon is now officially one minute and 19 seconds long. And I thought what we would do here is, uh, let, me, let me play this here. Yeah, uh, just I want to uh, keep track of how long it takes Pastor David Benson to actually... Um, you know, get to the Bible. I mean, he is a pastor, and this is supposedly a church. It is called Grace Creek Church. 
So, I mean, I, I want to find out how long it takes for him to actually get to God's word. Now, something to keep in mind, just if, if he mentions a passage in passing, I won't give him credit for it. If he takes a passage out of context and twists it and makes it say something that it doesn't say when you read it in context, I won't give him credit for it for that either. So, I mean, again, the question on the table is, how does this sermon contribute to the task of making disciples? And I work from the premise that it's impossible to teach sound biblical doctrine and the correct um, biblical teaching about Jesus if you're twisting his words and making it say something that it isn't. So let's find out how long it takes him to get to the Bible and not just get to a uh, you know to a, a verse that's mentioned in passing, but actually get to a passage where he correctly handles it and teaches what the passage says. Okay, uh, in context. So here, well, let's continue. Nothing that they're doing because they're passionate about it, but they're just doing life. Now, this is what I want you to write down if you're taking notes right at the beginning. And if you're not taking notes, I'd like you to write it down anyway. So uh, just write it on your arm or something. You'd be good. You know, everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. Um, are we talking about heaven and hell? I mean, because when we talk about the Christian faith, the ultimate ending up somewhere is either in the Lord's presence, life eternal, or in the lake of fire, eternal damnation. I mean, will that talk about arriving somewhere? I mean, the Bible really addresses uh, those two end, end destinations. Is that what you're talking about, David? Everyone in life ends up somewhere at the end of their life days. They're somewhere, obviously, that their life has taken them. But few people end up there on purpose. Because that's where they're designed to go. That's what they're designed to do. Just earlier this week, uh, I went into the mall and, and interviewed some people to really find out what people were thinking and what their plans were. The main question being, where do you want your life to be five years from now? Uh, and apart from one young girl's answer, probably in her early 20s, well, definitely in her early 20s, all the people I spoke to started the answer to that question, where do you want your life to be five years from now, like this. Um, 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 I, um, I'd like to be um, wiser. Uh, or they might say... I, I'd oh, this is terrible. I mean, serious. there's a whole bunch of people out there that haven't planned out the next five years of their life Oh, the human tragedy. Oh, this is awful. I, I can't believe it because Jesus taught us how to use the Franklin Covey day planner. And uh, I'd, li I'd like to be better off financially or um, I I'd like to be stronger with my family. Things like that. But they all started with um, uh, and really they were telling me by their ums and ahs that really they were having to think about it. Now, I want to pose that to you right now. Not to answer out loud, so don't um and ah, or else the person next to you might hear it. But you know, where do you want to be five, ten years from now? What do you want? You I have no idea. I, I am praying by the Lord's mercy that I'm able to continue doing what I'm doing. But I don't know where I'm going to be five years from now or what I'm going to be doing five years from now. I, I might not even be here. 
Is it a sin if I haven't come up with a plan for my life? You know, sat down and cast vision and dreams for my life and, and just sit there and go, I, five years from now, I'd really like to, uh, I don't know. Uh, do I go to hell if I don't? Ha- I mean, when I stand before the Lord, is God going to say, "Okay, Chris, and let's uh, let's take an audit of your life and let's see, let's take a look here"? Uh, it says here that you believed in me for the forgiveness of your sins. That's great, yeah. But the really important question is, uh, Chris, can you uh, hand me uh, your five-year plan for your life? Because um, you know, I I just I'm, I'm not sure if I really want you. In my kingdom, unless, of course, you've sat down and mapped out a five to ten year plan for your life. See, those things that were said after the ums and ahs were valid, good things to aim for. But the problem was the fact that they were umming and ahing. Everybody was saying the same thing. Unless they had a plan, it's not going to happen. So let me just pause you some thoughts right now. Here's a question. Five years from now. How many of you would like to say, I'd love to be closer to God, you know, really hearing from Him, obeying His Spirit, glorifying God, closer than I've ever been before? Who would say absolutely? Just raise your hand if it's absolutely. I want to be there five years from now. What about this? Let's talk about relationships. Five years from now, how many would like to be closer to their spouses if you're married? Ooh, 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 I know, I know. Five years from now, I would like to not be doing this job because uh, the Christian church revolted against pastors like this and kicked them out of their pulpits and took back the churches and installed guys who preach the full counsel of the word of God, correctly handle law and gospel and uh, the sacraments. Does that count? Or have strong spiritual friends. You know, if your family, if you have a family, that your family's growing closer, your children are actually respecting one another and growing in God of their own volition. Who wants to be there? He says, absolutely, I want to be there. Yeah, we all want to be there. Five years from now, what about this one? I want to be debt free. No credit card debt. No car payment. No house note. What your biggest financial problem is, where do we give money to bless somebody? How how can we find somebody to bless? Who wants? So he's preaching dreams. Uh, you know, just creatively think about what are the possibilities. I mean, if you were to come up with a five-year plan for your life, what? Imagine what you could do if you set your mind to this or that or the other thing. Mm-hmm. To be there, debt-free, no credit cards, no car notes. We all want to be there, right? You see, the problem with those kinds of questions is everybody's going to say yes. Everybody is. But you know, five years ago, if we'd have asked that same question, everybody would have still said yes, but many people five years on are still struggling to get by financially, still wish. Could it be that um, the reason why people are still struggling is because uh, uh, that their natures are corrupt and they're sinners? You know, I'm just... I know that's crazy talk, but that's funny because that's exactly how the Bible describes our problem. Wishing their relationships were better, still hoping that their future holds more. But you know what, guys? It doesn't happen by wishing and hoping. Right, yeah. 
It doesn't happen by wishing and hoping. We are now officially five minutes and uh, two seconds into this uh, sermon. And uh, God's Word has uh, not made an appearance yet, uh, not even a twisted version of God's Word. Where is this stuff taught in the Bible again? It really doesn't. You know, if we just drift, then those aren't really goals. They're just wishes. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. See this watch? Amazing uh, watch, this? No, I, well, I assume that you have a watch on, but no, this is radio. I can't see it. Nine ninety nine Walmart. Okay. But I think many of you have a watch, something similar to this on your wrist. If, if you've got a battery-powered quartz watch on your wrist today, just raise your hand. Battery-powered quartz watch. That's about 50% of you at least. Uh, what do battery powered quartz watches have to do with the bible pastor benson the rest of you that haven't learned to tell the time yet or whatever but you know what i want to tell you a story that's going to rocket us into where we're going today uh is the story found in the bible 1969 long time ago the swiss hey hey <laughs> I was born in 68, so watch it there. You're saying, you know. Were the leaders in the world watch market. Not a surprise, perhaps, to hear that. In 1969, they held 80% of the profit of all watch sales worldwide. And they had 65% of the market. Ten years later, 1979, they held a 10% market share they dropped almost out of the picture what on earth happened oh this is just a tragedy i can't believe that this has happened what the swiss have lost all that market share this is terrible oh i just um I, what exactly does this have to do with Jesus Christ, the Bible, God, um, you know, what's sound biblical doctrine, what the scriptures teach, huh? Well, this is the story. Back in 1969, the Swiss held all of that market share, 80% of the world market share. And they invented this little watch here, a battery-powered quartz watch. But the Swiss looked at it as a novelty because they were so ingrained with the fact that it would never replace the clockwork wind-up watch because we are Swiss and we're excellent at making wind-up watches. In 1969, there was a World's Watch Makers Fair and they put the digital watch on display as a novelty. So much so did they think it was merely a novelty, they didn't even bother to take a patent out on it. And they put it on display and representatives of two companies came across the stand of the Swiss watchmakers. One was a rep of Texas Instruments and the other was of Seiko Japan. The rest is history. In 10 years, those two companies combined took almost all the watch share off Switzerland to their representative countries. 
That's how important it is that we've got to move and stay in such a way that we can change our paradigm. We can shift the way we think. We can shift the way we see. All the switch. Uh, what? <laughs> this is a fine MBA um, story. I mean, this is the type of story when I was doing my MBA at Pepperdine. I mean, we would read case studies like this in the Harvard Business Review and uh, talk about what what it is that the companies did wrong. Why did they end up in this uh, predicament? Um, but uh, um, why would I, who cares? Who am I? Is this like uh, the third eagle of the apocalypse trying to figure out the divine prophecy in the fact that the Swiss lost so much market share between 1969 and 1979? By the way, um, seven minutes, 50 seconds into the sermon and uh, still no appearance of the word of God. We continue. We could see was that wind-up clockwork watches are the best. Today they still make some extremely good watches, high-end, high-dollar watches, but they're gone from the market share of the world because 9.99 from Walmart keeps as good a time as the most expensive clockwork watch. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that the world was about to change. They couldn't see that. They were so locked in to a way of thinking. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> hang on a second here. That's the 8 minute 32 second mark in the sermon. Uh, let me uh, back this up. I want to make sure I've got the proper address. We've got it. We've, uh, now that uh, God's word has officially made its first entrance, into the sermon, we need to, uh, well, check to make sure that it was properly handled here. Couldn't see that the world was about to change. They couldn't see that. They were so locked in to a way of thinking. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Okay, uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. Now, uh, given the context of how he's using this verse, I mean, he was talking about the Swiss not having enough vision to see the major market change that was coming, and as a result of it, they lost market share. So let's take a look. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. And uh, let's see if um, this passage. Uh, oh yeah, so, you know. By the way, sorry. Uh, here's what the uh, verse says. It says, um, "Where there is no prophetic." vision the people cast off restraint yeah see what prophetic vision would be hearing from god what would be an example today of a prophetic vision open your bible we have all of the uh the the what we know to be valid and true uh with their source being uh the mind of god revelation and then prophetic visions uh that have been verified by jesus christ himself he put his stamp of approval on him where there is no prophetic vision, uh, the people cast off for stain. So uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen um, doesn't um, uh, teach anything about um, vision when it comes to uh, anticipating changes in the market. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I am so sorry, Pastor Benson, but uh, we can't give you credit there. Uh, for actually quoting the Bible correctly. So 
Um, the uh, countdown clock continues. We still have yet to hear uh, God's word in this sermon correctly handled. So, Try again harder, and maybe next time you'll properly handle God's word. But we'll, we'll find out. So 832, we had a close call, but God's word actually didn't make a, uh, an appearance because he twisted it. Where there is no vision, where you don't see something different, the people perish and companies perish, marriages perish, churches perish, lives just drift because there's no vision. Without a vision, the people perish. Yeah, see, Proverbs 29:18 is not about us having a vision for the future. It's about, you know, a prophetic prophecy given by God. It's, it's referring to God's word. And so what happened to the Swiss watchmakers can happen in family after family after family. Oh, that sounds horrible. Can you imagine what happened to a Swiss watchmaker happening to you? You losing market share? <gasps> That's terrible. Around this world and more importantly in Longview, Texas right now. And I want to help you today to stir up that dream, to stir up that vision. You know, because all of us all of us have been having dreams at one time or another. The one person I mentioned to you that didn't say, um and ah. <laughs> All of us have dreams at one time or another. So you're, this is a sermon about us having dreams. I, uh, oh, wow, this is... Um, uh, uh, you know, Jude uh, talks about this in his epistle. Uh, Jude verse 8 is uh, the, the verse that I want to uh, look at, but uh, let me uh, back this up. Jude verse 5, context, context, context. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, these people who've crept in, who are... Um, uh, twisting and perverting the gospel. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, they reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. So uh, Jude, in uh, warning us about false teachers, points out the fact that false teachers, one of the hallmarks of a false teacher, somebody who's perverting the gospel, somebody who's twisting the gospel message, is that they rely on their dreams. And so here we've got Pastor Benson, rather than pointing us to the clear teaching of the Word of God, is now teaching us to somehow rely upon our dreams, and is, and apparently the Bible is all about teaching you how to, uh, well, concoct these dreams for yourself. Uh, no, it's not, Pastor Benson. Um, this is disturbing, to say the least. In the mall was a young girl of about 24, I guess, and when I approached her and asked her, what do you see for your life five years from now? She said, With, without a hesitation, I'm finishing school, I'm going to be a nurse, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to uh, succeed in that, that, that trade. Because, you know, because she's so much more, you know, um, spiritual than we are. That's why she was able to just, you know, whip out her plan for her life. Uh, in that vocation. And it was immediate, straight off, the, off her lips. And I said, great, girl, that's fantastic. The only one. She had a plan, she was working it out and making it happen. You know what? 
the older you get, it seems, the less we dream. Now, I don't mean old like me. I mean old like mid-30s. You take a child, any child, we could go back there to the children's department and kind of do a quick mall asking of questions like I did. What do you want to be when you grow up? And not a one of them will say, well, you know what? I think I want to be a one-parent family on welfare. Um, yeah, uh, Pastor Benson, we are now 10 minutes, 7 seconds into this uh, sermon. Yeah, you are a pastor. You're supposed to be actually teaching the Word of God. Um, and God's Word has yet to make uh, an appearance in a proper sense. I mean, not in you know, where it's actually correctly taught. Um, we did get Proverbs 29:18, but unfortunately you completely mangled that passage and made it say something that it doesn't say. Uh, can we get to God's word here anytime soon, Pastor? I mean, you do have a job, and that is to uh, make disciples and teach people everything that Christ has commanded them, and that's all in the scriptures. And there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the scriptures that you're kind of missing at the moment and kind of ignoring. That I think maybe you might want to consider getting to. Or I think you know I think I want to be long term unemployed and really drift through life being a bum. Nobody's going to say that. You ask kids what they see, and they'll say, I, I, want, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a soldier. I want to be the president of the United States. Uh, do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this problem? I, I don't think so. What is stopping your child becoming the president of the United States? Absolutely nothing. Somebody has to be when they're 40 years old or whatever. Why not them? See, children can dream. But as we get older and not that old, dreams seem to be replaced by life. Yeah. Uh -huh. And life happens. Yeah, because that's terrible. Yeah, if, if life is happening to you, you need to repent. And you better get spiritual and come up with a five-year plan for your life. You know what? I've got bills to pay, and I've got kids to get shoes on their feet. And, and what exactly is wrong with that? And I've got to put bread on the table. And, and what again, what is wrong with working in a vocation to pay your bills, to care for your children, and to put bread on the table? What's wrong with that? Isn't that what God calls us to do, to quietly work with our hands and... Serve our neighbor? And, well, yeah, I dream once, but you know what? It's just life. It's just life. You know? Oh, yeah, that's just life. Hang on a second here. I feel the need to find a passage, and I don't know the address. Um, hang on a second here. Pulling up my computerized Bible. Um, yeah, First Thessalonians... Um, Chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's verse 11 that I really want to get to, but I want to read it in context again. Um, let's see here. Um, I apologize. Let me uh, point out the fact that this is at the tail end of the epistle, and um, it's important when we're reading Scripture to always understand Christian sanctification is grounded, rooted, and centered in on uh, Christ and him crucified for our sins and the justifying and sanctifying work of God. Okay, That being the case, I'm going to read to you stuff that pertains to our sanctifications, uh, sanctification, things that we are admonished to do in light of the cross as Christians. 
Okay, that being that's enough uh, foreground. Now let's take a look in context. First Thessalonians chapter four verse one. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, that as you received uh, from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For it is the will of God. Uh, for it, this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Uh, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives us his gives his holy spirit to you now concerning brotherly love you yourselves have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by god to love one another for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers through macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Yeah, let me read that again. Um, Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, be dependent on no one. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now, doesn't God, I mean, based upon what we're reading here, um, this idea of life just happening and you not having anything special happening to you and you working to put bread on the table and pay your bills and care for your kids. I mean, the way Pastor Benson is talking, I mean, that, apparently that's a bad thing because you don't have a plan or a vision or a dream for your life. Um, well, if if the scriptures were teaching what Pastor Benson was trying to make the point as in this so-called sermon then why do we have this passage that tells us to quietly mind our affairs, work with our hands, and be dependent on no one? Do your work. You know, do life. Nothing here about having a big dream to being a world changer or anything like that. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, Pastor Benson isn't preaching and teaching what the Bible actually says. It's a possibility at this point, don't you think? When I ask you, can you see this? Would you like this to happen? Would you like strong relationships? Would you like to be debt-free? That's great. But you know, the problem is this, that we're all trained from such an early age to conform. Yeah, that, yeah we're... Oh, yeah, that conformity thing is just terrible. I mean, wow. Yeah, I wouldn't want to... Huh? Where is that again in the Bible? Oh, by the way. Yeah, we are officially uh, 11 minutes, 20 seconds, and God's Word has not yet made an appearance in this sermon at this church by this pastor. Don't you think that's a problem? 
When you're in kindergarten, in preschool, the teacher will tell you, well, Johnny, just colour in the lines, stay in the lines, and when you've coloured it within the lines, she'll come along and say, well done, you've coloured it in the lines. And so we grow up and we understand we have to live within the lines. And so we... Oh, yeah, imagine all the deep psychological damage that we're causing our children by giving them colouring book pages and then... Telling them to color in the lines. I I can... Oh, this... What a terrible mortal sin this is. You no longer think outside of a box. Oh, no. Not the dreaded box. He... Oh, that's terrible. Yes, we are now... See, now he's done it. He's mentioned the box. I mean, that is the big bane in American society and, in, and around the Western uh, democracies in the world today. You don't want to be caught in a box. Not the box. No, anything but the box. Oh, not the box. I can't stand the box. Oh, please, free us from the box. Oh, whatever. We no longer think we can do life differently. We no longer think that there's something different that can happen because everybody around me is living the same way. We've all been trained to live the normal life. Whatever that is, racially, culturally, economically, we need a paradigm shift. We need to be able to see something that is different. Uh, where is this paradigm shift taught? In the Bible again? In Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, wait. <laughs> Hang on a second here, folks. Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, we have this, our second potential mention, uh, sighting of the Word of God here. Now, keep in mind, uh, we're asking the question today, or answering the question, how does the sermon uh, contribute to the ta fulfilling the task of making disciples, you know, where Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you? Um and that would mean teaching the full counsel of the Word of God. And we are at the 12-minute, 8-second mark in the sermon. And uh, and so what I was doing was counting down uh, and you know how long it would take for God's Word to actually make an appearance. And I made a caveat, and that is, is that even if a verse is mentioned in passing, if he is not correctly teaching what that verse says when we examine it in context, that doesn't count. So now we have our second potential candidate for God's word showing up in uh, in the sermon here, uh, Jeremiah chapter twenty nine, and he's going to be reading verse eleven for us <clears throat> out of context. Um, by the way, here's what uh, out of context uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says. It says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope." So, is, is, doesn't that sound great? I mean, isn't that just wow? God has plans for me and. Hang on a second here. Uh, there's three uh, interpretive rules that we constantly refer to here at Fighting for the Faith. They are context, context, and context. Let's um, <clears throat> slow down and let's put this verse in context so we can see what this verse is about. Then we'll see if uh, Pastor Benson uh, picks up on that in context. Now, um, in Jeremiah chapter 29, we have a communication from God uh, to the survivors of the exile in Babylon. Yeah, let me read. Um, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile 
from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of uh, Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, quote, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Ah, okay, so God is the one who uh, had Jeremiah act as the scribe as he dictated the letter. And so this is a letter from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles in Babylon. Here's what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream. (laughs) Ouch. Uh, I wonder if that applies to Benson here. Kind of, well, maybe in principle. Uh, For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you, uh, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations And all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Is uh, Jeremiah 29.11 a universal promise to all believers? Well, when you read it in context, the answer is no, it isn't. And to rip it out of context and make it a universally applicable promise is to really do violence to God's word. So now, now what we know, we know what the verse says in context. Let's see if um, <clears throat> Pastor Benson handles this verse correctly. Whether you can quote the verse or not, you'll know the passage probably. And I'm reading it to you out of the message. Now listen to what God says about you. Uh, what? Listen to what God says about me? Jeremiah 29, 11? I know what I'm doing, God says. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you, to give you the future to hope for. Did you hear what God said to you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Pastor Benson. That was a great attempt. Fine college try, but uh, yeah, we have to give you an F minus for your efforts there. Um, uh, you need to go back to um, uh, seminary and take basic hermeneutics again, and uh, maybe even a class in Hebrew, a class in reading comprehension, something to help you here, because uh, you said you you prepared for the sermon and studied hard. 
Um, apparently you forgot to read this verse in context so that you rightly handled God's word. So, yeah, I uh, I have to say this, that uh, we're now 12 minutes, 32 seconds into the sermon, and um, God's word has yet to really truly make an appearance where it's handled and taught correctly. Uh, let's hope that Pastor Benson is able to turn things around here. Let's continue. I've got it all figured out. I've got it all planned out. I've got plans to take care of you, not abandon you. God will never desert you. But more so than that, he's got plans to give you a future to hope for. Every single human being that's created and born into this world, God has put dreams inside them. How many understand that... Um, Every single human being that's born in the world is born in dead, in trespasses, in sins. Uh, I mean, he basically makes it sound like, well, everybody's got all these dreams inside of them, and that's a great thing, and that's what Christianity is all about, helping you to learn how to, you know, uh, tap into those dreams that everybody has. No, the Christian uh, message, the gospel given to us by God, is that we are all dead in trespasses and sins, and we're we're to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, not go and proclaim how to tap into your God-given dreams. Hmm. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, if you've done that, that you have had an impact on your life that changed you. Anybody know they've changed since Jesus came into their life? Of course, everyone. Because when God enters a situation, when God enters a life, he changes things. And so when God lives in you and he deposits you into a situation, we are to be agents of change, agents of dreaming, agents of giving people hope so that they too can find this God whom we serve because he's an amazing, mighty God, right? Yeah, amen. You know, God has amazing plans for each one of us. But you know, many of us without a dream will never realize these things. Wow. This is terrible. This, I mean, this is just flat out lies that he's preaching from the pulpit at this church or stage, whatever. Pamela and I like to cruise as often as we, we can. And, and some of these ships, the last one we just went on, huge, huge ship. Sad thing is many of our lives are like that because in God's economy, we are all a type of those huge liners built to go amazing distances and to foreign lands. And, but we're like amazing ocean liners plonked in the middle of a mill pond. No distant ports to reach, no horizons to cross, just sailing, just kind of sat on water. And many of our lives are just like that. We're just kind of sat in a mill pond. We're we're actually doing what we're created to do in the sense that we're floating, but we're not doing what we're created to do because we're not going anywhere. Where does it say this in the Bible again? Um, We are now officially 14 minutes, 32 seconds into the sermon. God's word is still... um, a wall. We just sat living life. And that's why so many people, so many people would say they're fed up. Many, many years ago, 102 people climbed on board a little wooden ship called the Mayflower. And they did so because they had a dream. 
They had a dream that they could go to a land where they would be free to express themselves without being persecuted by the establishment. And so they traveled across the sea 450 miles north of where, the, where Jamestown, the main settlement, was. So, in effect, they were totally isolated and on their own. Within six months, over 50 of them were dead. So less than 50 of them were alive after six months that came for that dream. Yet today, 10% of all Americans can trace their heritage back to those 50-odd people who survived that six months. Isn't that amazing? And this story is found in the Bible where? Uh, again, um, the question is, um, how does this sermon uh, contribute to fulfilling the task of making disciples as given by Jesus in uh, Matthew 28? I, I'm just not seeing that doing that at all. <coughs> Somebody say yes. <coughs> well, I cough, you can shout yes. Okay. They traveled for a dream that propelled them across an ocean to give their lives, many of them, not being able to survive that first winter. And yet 10% of all Americans today owe those people their inhabitants of this land. You would not be here but for them. That means people in here today, you're related way back to people on that Mayflower. I'm going to just move this bottle. There's a young man, 24 years old, young man, 24 years old, called Lee, who worked in a department store serving people. And as he was serving people day by day, he knew in his heart that there was more to life than this. He knew inside him there was more than just serving people in a department store. Nothing wrong with that at all. Any work is honorable. But he knew there was more for him, so he signed up and went for an audition. Um, <clears throat> just want to make something clear. Um, this story also does not appear in the Bible. I just want to make it clear. We are now 16 minutes and uh, 51 seconds into this uh, sermon. And uh, God's Word has yet to make a valid appearance in this uh, sermon. And this story that you're hearing, again, it, it's not found in the Bible. For America's greatest talent, what's it called, the show? American Idol, thank you. And he is the guy who has just won it. And all of the judges said of him that he, you're amazing. You've just won amazingly, you just wipe the board with everybody else. Now, could he have stayed serving people in a department store? Absolutely. He could have been there at 50 years old, serving people in that same department store. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But inside him, he had a dream. And I want to ask you, what's the dream that's inside of you? What is the dream that's inside of you? Um, you know... I, I I can honestly say that God has protected me from some of my dreams. Um, if the some of the dreams I had for myself had been fulfilled, whoo boy, I I think my life would have been a, a, a train wreck. You know, it's the same in any area of life. That each one of us have got to have a dream to make anything happen, anything at all. 
And if I don't, if I don't, is it a sin? If I do have a dream and it doesn't happen and I give up on the dream and, you know, decide to just do life, you know, as it happens, am I sinning? Do, do I need to be forgiven for, for that? Did Jesus die on the cross for my um, lack of dreaminess? Is that the right way of putting it? Being English, we, we tend to have English visitors, right? And they come across to stay with us. And when they come, because we're in Texas, often they want to go and see the Alamo. And uh, when, when we go to see the Alamo, I, I think I've probably been around the Alamo more than any of you guys. You know, I must have been around it like seven, eight times. In fact, I think that when I retire, I could probably become a Dawson down at the Alamo. Uh, I do want to let you all know that the Alamo, again, it, it, that isn't the, the story of the Alamo, not found in the Bible. Mm-hmm. 18 minutes, 7 seconds now, and God's Word has yet to make a valid appearance. Uh, time is ticking, Pastor. You have a job to do. When are you going to actually get to it? You know, and uh, so much so that now my wife, Pamela, is when anybody comes and wants to see the Alamo, I said, I'm not coming. I've seen it, you know, that many times. So I go with them, of course, because they're excited. And we're wandering around the Alamo and I'm pointing out this and saying this happened here. And, and I'm, I'm kind of wandering around like a docent telling them all that's gone on at this place. You know, but the fact is this, that real people gave real sacrifice in that place. And, and if you've been to the Alamo down in San Antonio, you've possibly also been to see the IMAX film that where, where Colonel Travis uh, made that amazing speech and, and the, the scene with the sword. And what he did was talk to those people, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, and, and many other people there. There was about a hundred and some odd people in there. And, and he spoke to them and all of them knew they had three options. They could try and run and perhaps get shot as they were leaving. They could surrender and be executed or they could stay and make them pay dearly and give their lives knowing they were going to die. And so Colonel Travis kind of spells this out for them and walks with his sword in the sand and draws that line. Uh, I do want to let you all know that, that uh, as fine as a patriot as uh, Colonel Travis was, um, his story is not recorded in the Bible either. Let me see if I'm missing something here. Um, hang on a second. Um, Matthew 28. I want to review Jesus' words here. Let's see here. <clears throat> all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Check. Uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Check. Yeah, I... Hmm. Is it me? or I mean... Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Maybe Jesus didn't mean it when he said that, you know, we're to teach everything that he's commanded. Uh, maybe he meant just make stuff up and, you know, come Sunday morning uh, when you gather together, you know, talk about whatever f comes to your mind. Maybe that's what Jesus insisted on instead. No, but it does say observing, uh, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, all that I have commanded you, all... That would be in God's Word. Yeah, that would be the Bible. So all of it, he wants God, Christ Jesus wants us to teach all of his Word as we're making disciples. Um, yeah, that's how I'm reading it. Maybe maybe I'm missing something here. I, 
hmm, is there an escape clause? Is there fine print, you know, in the six-point Helvetica font where Jesus said, unless, of course, you know, you wanted to preach about dreams, then just whatever you want and, you know, the Alamo story and Lee DeWise's story and, and other people's stories are, are perfectly fine substitutes for the Word of God on any given Sunday. Hmm. A famous scene. Now, I don't know whether that actually happened or not. Nobody does because everybody's dead that was there. But it makes a good story. But this is one thing I do know. Whether he actually did that or not, whether he did it or not, the people there had to step over that line inside. They had to say, this is worth dying for. Now, the people that were there were a mixed bunch. There was nobody that was Texan because there wasn't really any Texans at that time. There were English, there were German, there were Swedes. There were people from higher up in America who'd come down to this area of Texas that would become Texas. And, and as they were there, they'd all come because they had a dream. They had a dream that they could go to this land and call it their own and carve out a life and do whatever they felt they could do to make the life that they chose to make. Uh, so on Sunday morning, you're preaching the American dream? Um, I'm confused because this, again, is not found in the Bible. Um, clock is ticking, Pastor. Uh, when are you going to actually get to your job? You know, the thing to which Christ has called you to do. Hmm. Um, yeah, because, I mean, we're 20 minutes, 18 seconds into this sermon, and, uh, I mean, we're just about at the halfway point. But for those hundred and some odd people, it came down to, is this dream worth giving your life for? And they did. And the truth is, we're all sat here in Texas, which is part of the United States of America, instead of being part of Mexico, because of what they did. And they bought the time necessary for Houston to come down and, and gather an army. And it's things like that, dreams like that, that push people to do things that make a difference, not just for me, but for my children and my children's children, and perhaps even farther than that, like the people on the Mayflower. And so I ask you, what is your dream? What is it that's passionately burning within you? Many of us have let those dreams just die. They're still there under the surface every now and again. But we've let it go down because, you know what? We've just got to get on with life. Let me read you a passage. I want to give you two lines to cross. Okay. Whew. Okay, hang on. 2120. We're 21 minutes into the sermon here. And he wants to give us a passage of the Bible. Now, his last two attempts at actually... Uh, giving us God's word failed miserably because he twisted the passages. Maybe this time he won't. Maybe, maybe we'll actually get to hear what God's word truly says and means. Now, you don't always have to quote a verse in context in order to correctly convey what's said in the verse. Context, though, helps you to understand whether or not what the pastor is saying the verse says actually says what he says that it says. Does that sound redundant to you? Yeah, let me check with the Department of the Redundancy Department to see if that was redundant. <clears throat> anyway, here we go. If we're going to see our dreams come alive. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance. 
And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing where he was going. At this point in time, in Genesis and chapter 11, this isn't the Abraham. In fact, he wasn't even called Abraham at the time. His name was Abram. But he wasn't the Abraham that we know that's talked about in Romans chapter 4 as the father of faith who who never wavered. No, at this point in time, he was merely a guy getting on with life. Okay, now he's referenced Hebrews 11 verse 8 and cross-referenced it with Genesis chapter 11 in the life of Abraham. Um, Let's, uh, before we uh, let Pastor Benson uh, wax more eloquently or continue waxing eloquent, um, what I thought we would do is, well, let's review Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bible, um, let's read, let's see if this, I mean, because he just made the claim that in Genesis 11, well, you know, at that point, Abram, because he wasn't called Abraham at that point, he was just doing life. Hmm. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll start at verse 1. Now faith, this is saving faith, faith in Jesus Christ is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God." And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, so far, then the great hall of faith passages, we're talking about faith. And keep in mind, faith is something that always has an object. You, 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 faith has to have something in which it fixes itself to. It's a pass through. It's like eyesight. So, uh, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Um, that is, that, that's the object of our faith. He, Jesus, is the object of our faith. So, you can always, you know, you can almost, whatever you affix, uh, the subject matter or the object of faith to, you can actually replace the word faith with it. You can say, by Christ, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By Christ, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. That's a, That kind of gets to the gist of what's going on here. So when we look at the great Hall of Faith passage, it's really the great Jesus Christ passage in a real way because all of these men by faith were looking towards and affixing their gaze upon Christ. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has its found, uh, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. 
By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who thus who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking uh, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Okay, so here we've got the great hall of faith passage. And I don't recall in Genesis chapter 11 it just saying that, uh, you know, Abraham suffered from just doing life. So uh, and we don't, he, uh, Pastor Benson will not get credit for Genesis chapter 11 because he twisted that. But let's see if he gets uh, credit for Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Let's see if he points us to what God's word really says there in Hebrews 11, 8. We just read it in context, so we're capable of, you know, knowing what it says. Now let's see what he does with it. He was a guy who was just doing his thing. He was kind of not really interested in, in being the, the, the grandfather of all these people that were going to come and the father of faith and, and the starter of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And He didn't have any thoughts like that. He was probably just paying the bills and living life. And then God came across his path. And God challenged him to leave all that he knew, all that he was secure with, all that was familiar and go to a land that I will show you. And he left. He obeyed God, it says. And there are two lines I want to talk to you that Abraham crossed that you have to cross as well, and I have to cross. If we're... Um, I am not... Uh, God hasn't called me to a new country. God hasn't called me to cross any lines, and um, I am not a descendant of the Messiah. What are you talking about? Going to see something happen that is different than merely getting to tomorrow, and tomorrow becoming 2011, and 2011 becoming 2020. And still we stand in a mall and say, um, I'd like to be wiser, um, I'd like to um, have less debt. Um, I want to help you set a goal. Now, if somebody's wiser and has no debt, are they going to heaven? I mean, does, I mean, does God, will he look at your financial statement and, you know, if your net worth is worth more than zero and you have a positive rather than a negative number on your net worth, will you uh, make it into the kingdom of God? And I want to help you see something that will motivate you. The first line we have to cross is the line of people and places. It has been said that we only change. Okay, it's official. Nope. Um, he twisted Hebrews uh, 11 as well as Genesis 11. So God's word has not actually made a true, valid, in context, properly taught appearance in this sermon. <sighs> yeah, it's so disappointing. Um, yeah, so I got to continue the clock countdown. We have yet to actually hear from God's word correctly handled in the sermon. Yeah, we are 23 minutes and uh, 22 seconds into this sermon. And um, yeah, God's word has yet to make a valid, correct appearance. This is tragic. 
We only grow to the measure that we meet people and we experience different places. Now, I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of traveling very far, but I do want to say this to you. Life isn't what we know here in Texas elsewhere. People live differently than we do right here. And when you go and travel to different places and experience different things, it affects you almost by osmosis. Just like a plant takes in the water by osmosis. So when we meet new people and when we go to new places, they start to infiltrate into us. My wife Pamela and I have have traveled in the sense of um, actually moving continents twice. And you know, I remember the first time that we did it, we moved from England. We were at that point in time in business, quite happy, successful, lovely, beautiful home. And uh, Pamela's father had been living with us. And, and, and we just knew that God started to speak to us to go to Africa. And so we made plans. And, and on uh, December uh, 1st of that year of two, uh, 1986, we headed off to Africa. And when we got there, we, we experienced things that changed our lives forever. But the point I want to point out to you is this, that when God called us eventually to come back to England and plant churches, one of the things that really, really impacted us, we went perhaps the first week back to a supermarket to buy groceries. Just a normal everyday thing that each one of us in here probably does every week. But as we walk down... I do need to point out this story about the grocery store. Again, this doesn't appear in the Bible. Just want to make that clear. It doesn't. And uh, so far, we have yet to hear Pastor Benson properly handle God's Word. In other words, we're more than halfway through the sermon, and God's Word has not really made a true appearance in the sermon. Down the aisle of the food, you know, the food aisles piled up with racks and racks and racks of food. Pamela started crying. I, and I didn't know why she was crying. I thought, oh, okay, what have I done? You know how that goes, guys. You know, what have I done now? Uh, and, or, you know, the other thing, who's done it? I'll go get him. You know, tell me who it was. But I don't know what was going on. And she wasn't upset, but she stopped and she said, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is almost evil. Not that it is evil, but the fact was, there's so much food. I, I, I can't, I can't choose it. Because we just come from a nation where most of the people that we were dealing with had never been in a place like that. They just existed with rice and a bit of chicken maybe and a pineapple. And that's how they lived for all of their lives. And we've been exposed to that and eaten a little bit better than that. But certainly not with the choices that we had in England or we have here in America. And, and when we walked in that supermarket, it just so impacted us that things happen to you when you travel, when you go to different places, when you meet with different people that change your life. Let me, ex- let me ex- give you an example. How many of you are here because someone's invited you, either now or in your past? You're here because you were invited. Let me just see. Okay. All right. It's about 50% of you. The other 50% invited those. Okay. That's great. You know what? You're here and what is happening to you as you sit here week after week after week, you're growing to understand more of God. You're growing to understand what church really can be like. Because you and I both know that there are many churches that don't do church like we do. That the atmosphere within the church isn't like it is at Grace. 
um, are, are you doing church there, um, Pastor Benson? I mean, if you were doing church, I mean, it's kind of a weird way of putting it. The language is a little bizarre. But, I mean, if you were really doing church and really actually, you know, doing what Christ commanded the church to do, don't you think that you would get busy with your task of actually teaching what the Bible teaches? You know, all that Christ commanded us, Matthew 28 kind of stuff. Um, because, I mean, so far we've got one, two, th- uh, officially three verses in the sermon that have been completely tortured and ripped out of context and made to say things that they don't really say. So, I mean, you're not really teaching God's word here. So my question is, are you really even doing church? But we're here and we're learning and and that's having an impact on our lives. And we're changing the way we are because of that osmosis happening to us week after week after week. The second time we moved continents was to come here. But that was no less difficult than going to Africa in a sense. Because as we made plans to come here, not because we thought, well, what a good idea, let's move to America. No, we were doing fine and we just loved what we were doing. But we knew God was calling us. So we condensed everything we had to a four by four crate that I made. And and silly things that we do. That we, we made this crate of, of wood. I made it good and solid so we could put some precious things in it. The things we needed to take, we wanted to take. And I just want to let you all know that um, if you search the Bible, you will not find the parable of the 4 by 4 crate. It nowhere appears in Scripture. And uh, God's Word has not really truly made an appearance here in the sermon. Uh, we are now 27 minutes, 49 seconds into the sermon. And God's Word has yet to make a valid in context, what it really teaches appearance in uh, this sermon. We continue. And as I was kind of pushing the things down and pushing the lid on the top, ready to screw it down, Pamela stopped me and she brought out this little packet of salt. Uh, and she said, I need to put this in. Uh, I said, why? What do you want to put the salt? She said, well, we don't know when we get there. If we'll be- uh, what exactly did he study? Um, I mean, he said that he studied to prepare this sermon. What was he studying? His life? His own life? Thinking back and, oh, what story from my life could I tell here? Hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember the time when we moved, our second continental move, and I made the 4 by 4 box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll fit perfectly, right? How much sermon preparation did he do here? He's got three verses ripped from context saying things that they don't say. I mean... That doesn't take any knowledge of theology or even biblical languages to do. I mean, did he consult commentaries? Which scholars did he read regarding these three passages that he ripped out of context in order to, you know, bring us this teaching today? To get any of this, because they might not have salt. Do we have salt here in Longview? I don't know. Do we have salt? You know. You know, we both knew we could get salt. We'd been to America many times, but, but I don't know what it was. Just things in your mind. You've got to put this salt in. You might need it. And so we put this salt in. I don't know what it costs us to weigh that salt all over here. But anyway, probably more than buying a packet of salt when we got here. But the point is, we left and came with this four-by-four four box because God had put a dream in our hearts. Oh, I get it. He's just like Abraham. Yeah, the Bible doesn't call us to be that way like Abraham. We can have the same faith as Abraham because faith, the faith that he had was the faith that trusted in Christ. 
uh, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise that the whole world would be blessed through the seed, Jesus, that would be directly descended from Abraham. <sighs> and we're sat in Grace Creek today because of that dream. Because this, the church wouldn't be here if we said in America, in England, we're not going, we're quite happy, but a dream had caught us and we came. We didn't know it was a dream called Grace Creek, but when we came, God opened doors and circumstances and things happened. That here we are. Why should I believe that God opened doors and circumstances for you to start Grace Creek since you're not doing the work that Jesus has called you to do? I mean... Sounds to me like more or less you probably had acid reflux disease and you mistook it for the, uh, you know, a dream that God laid on your heart. If you had taken Pepsi, it might have gone away. And I want to say to you, there's something in each and every single one of you that will change the life for grandchildren and great-grandchildren and people to come that aren't even born yet if we'll simply follow a dream. Amen? Come on, give him praise, shall we? Follow for what? What am I praising God again for? Giving you a dream? A dream. The second line to cross is the line of the unknown. Let me read the passage to you once again. Please, because, you know, twisting it the first time wasn't enough. Please twist it again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. You know, all of us have acquaintances, friends, and people that are around us, family. And there's nothing wrong with any of them, probably. But I want you to ask this question of yourself. Looking at their lives and their marriages and how they live their lives, is that where you want to be? In 5, 10, 15 years' time? Uh, yeah, that uh, Hebrews 11.8 doesn't address this issue. Why are you doing this? If the answer's yes, well, fine. That's fine. Just carry on. That's great. No problem. But if the answer's no, I'd like to have something different than that, then listen, you've got to cross the line. You've got to find new people to be near. You've got to find new things to do. Because if you continue with the same friends in the same environment... Really, this is what Hebrews 11 says. If you continue with the same friends, uh, isn't there value in having lifelong friends? Why do I need new friends? That's not what Hebrews 11.8 says. I actually... The friends that I've had for many years, they know me really well and I trust them. Why would I want to ditch them for a whole group of people that I don't know who don't know me? Doing the same thing. Five, ten years will come, and I could ask you the same question, and the answer would still be the same. I would like to see. Now, that's not to say that we leave friends behind. Not at all. We can keep them as friends, but we choose who we spend quality time with. If someone is successful in business and you want to get into business, get near them. If someone has a. Oh, I see. So, I, what I really need to do is. Yeah, I not really have friendships. I need to find people that I can be a parasite to. I mean, I, so what I really need to do is find somebody who's a great theologian and saddle up to them and, you know, try to be their friend so that I can figure out how they do what they do so I can be a better theologian and apologist. You know, maybe some of their greatness will rub off on me. Yeah, that's not really friendship. That seems like pretty selfish, parasitic um 
uh, what's in it for me kind of relationships. Hmm. Great marriages from your perspective. Get near them. If you see somebody who's really close to God and going on with God and that's what you want, get near them. Don't sit and wait for them to come to you because it probably won't happen. Because there's lots of people that would answer the same questions in the affirmative. I'd like to be closer to God. I'd like to open a business. I'd like to have a better marriage. So how can they come to all of you? Seek them out and get near them. Spend time with them. Take them to lunch and say to them, you know what, can I spend... Uh, I just need to remind you all, Hebrews 11.8 doesn't teach this. He, uh, God's word is... We're now 31, actually 31 minutes, 17 seconds into this uh, sermon, and God's word has not correct... Uh, really hasn't made an appearance at all. I mean, Pastor Benson has completely mangled and distorted and twisted God's word into a pretzel, and it... He's not teaching what the Bible says at all. Time with you? Can I just uh, have some input from you? Can I run this plan past you? Could you help us? Because you know what? People have things in area that I haven't got that I might need if I want to achieve what they're achieving. And so do you. And we need to choose where we're going to spend our quality time. If we don't, we merely stay where we are. Yeah, that's right. Choose to stay whom you will be parasitic to. So that you can achieve the things that you, you know, that you were dreaming about. And one of the lines we've got across is that into the unknown. Because the truth is when we set off with a plan and a dream, we don't know what's going to unfold. We don't know that it's, it might not turn out exactly the way that we'd thought. But if we want to grow our business, if we want to grow our marriage, if we want to grow in the relationship with God. How about I don't want to go to hell? You got anything for that? then we've got to cross these lines. We've got to choose to be pioneers again. You know, many of us stay where we are because it's comforting. Yeah, nowhere in the Bible does it say we have to choose to be pioneers and that if you're not a pioneer, you're in grievous, terrible sin against dreams. Even if you might save your life, you have complaints in some areas. Well, it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. You know, just stay where you are. And you just carry on the way you are in the same area of town, in the same friends and the same family. Repeat this with me, will you? The same friends and the same family. Should I get a new family too? Do you want me to trade my family in on a newer model? (sighs) Nothing ever changes by wishing. You're a disobedient bunch. (laughs) Say this with me. Why should they say it with you? It's not taught in the Bible. Nothing ever changes by wishing. It just doesn't. Now, those of you who uh, attend uh, Grace Creek Church and you have a dream of, um, you know, getting rid of Pastor Benson and replacing him with a real man of God who really preaches God's word, nothing ever changes by wishing. Yeah, uh, you you need to be pioneers and take matters into your own hands in order to see your dream of of a pastor who preaches the gospel, correctly handles God's word, and placards Christ and him crucified for your sins Sunday after Sunday. Nothing ever happens just by wishing. Some of you are kind of in the same decade as me will remember the song, Wishing and Hoping. And, you, know, it, you know, it just doesn't happen by wishing and hoping. 
But we've got to do something. What is stopping you guys? What is stopping you starting that business? What is stopping you expanding? What is stopping you being different with your wife or a husband to make your marriage better? What is stopping you? What is holding you there? Well, I just live in this area of town. Well, as I've said so many times, you're not a tree. Move. Move. Do something that will make something happen. Do something with your life that makes you collide with a different set of circumstances. And when you do, doors open. I remember that when uh, in earlier years of my life, I'd worked in my family business, my father's business. And there comes a time in most guys' lives when they want to know that they can do it on their own. And I wanted to start my own business. And Pamela backed me in that. But to do it, to do it, we had to sell everything. We sold our home. We sold everything to buy this business. And and the only business we could actually afford was one that had gone bankrupt. And and it had gone bankrupt because the people in it were thieves. They'd stolen all the money that had been gathered by layaway people and what have you and stolen that and gone. And so not the best business to buy, right? But anyway, that's the only one we could afford. And so we bought it and we got it going. But it entailed us moving with our three little children in December and the, the snow on the ground literally as we were moving snowing very uh, by the way this is another story from pastor benson's life um uh, the question on the table again is um how does this sermon contribute to the uh to fulfilling the task of making disciples as laid out by jesus christ in matthew 28 i i'm just not seeing that happening here in this so-called sermon um, and I, again, I asked the question, uh, how did, again, did he, quote, prepare for this sermon? I mean, what was all the study that he was doing in order to bring this powerful message uh, from from God? I mean, I, I, God's word has been completely mang. I don't think he's done any prep at all. Uh, sounds to me like you put this together on a Saturday night over, you know, over a beer and basically saying, you know, what can I say that's going to make people feel good about themselves tomorrow rather than actually cracking open the book and doing the hard work of really diving into God's word, understanding what the passage teaches, what God has revealed in his word, and then bringing that to uh, God's sheep and feeding them with God's word. I, I don't see that happening at all in this sermon. Do you? Very hard, and the snow was about a foot, 18 inches deep on the sidewalks. Terrible day to move in. And I'm taking my wife from what was a beautiful brand new home that we bought, that we'd sold to buy this business, to a little apartment over the business as we were starting it that was icy cold. It leaked. There was ice on in the inside of the walls when we woke up in the morning. We put the kids, there was only two bedrooms, we put the kids in the larger bedroom and we went in the smaller bedroom that was so small, we had a, what size of bed do they call it here, Pam? A queen. We had a queen bed and, and, and we slotted it in and both sides touched the wall. So we had to climb in from the bottom of the bed to get into the bed. We couldn't get, and how many of you know Pamela's backing me but not pleased about this situation? And so as the days went on and the freezing cold of British winter is inside the house with us, I knew I had to do something about this. 16 weeks into starting a brand new business that had gone bankrupt and we were just getting it going again, I went to see a bank manager that we'd had for years and years and I sat down with him and said, I need to buy a house. I need to get money off you to buy a house. And 
and he, and he knew the circumstances and he knew that I had no books or anything to, to prove income from this business. And, and he said, well, David, if you'll get your dad to guarantee this loan for you, then I'll lend you the money. And I, I told him, no, I'm not asking my dad to do that. I want you to give me the money. I'll, I'll make sure you get paid back. And, and we talked for a little while and, uh, and, and then after a while he laughed. Now, this is the bank manager, and he laughed, and he said, David, I've never done this before. He said, but I'm going to guarantee the loan for you myself. And so, you know, 16 weeks into it, I could move my wife out of that apartment into another nice house. Not as big as the one we left, but a nice house. And all Uh, I need to remind you, this story is not found in the Bible. Because I went and sat with a guy because I knew that God wanted me to do something. Now, you know what? Could he have laughed again? He talks about it. I knew that God wanted me to do this. And I knew God was telling me to do that. And God, you know, what's funny is, is that uh, God in no uncertain terms laid out in his word what he wants pastors to do. God has spoken. He hasn't changed his mind. He wants pastors to preach his word and to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to proclaim sound biblical doctrine, to rightly handle God's word, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and, and teaching. And uh, um, we, the, we have sure wor- a sure word from God regarding what a pastor is supposed to be doing, yet he's not doing this. And yet he tells us that God is communicating to him all the time. I don't think God is really talking to this guy at all. In fact, who he's hearing from isn't the God of the Bible, that's for sure, because he's in outright disobedience and defiance against what the God of the Bible has commanded pastors to do. Hmm. 36 minutes, uh, 34 seconds into this... um, sermon and yeah god's word has not yet made a proper untwisted appearance uh in this sermon but boy i mean you would think that uh, pastor benson's life is well synonymous with uh the life of any of the people recorded for us in the bible I mean, because God talks to him, and I mean, he preaches his life as if, you know, it's normative for all other Christians. ...at me and sent me out, absolutely. But I'll tell you one thing I can guarantee, if I didn't risk the embarrassment by going in, I'd have never got the house. Right? And so what do you need to do, guys, to risk the embarrassment, take the chance... You know, just to be like Benson. ...do something, because as you step out, God opens doors... But what verse says that is we step out, God open source. What what verse says that again? Where is that written? I mean, you make it sound like that's a biblical teaching. I mean, you are a pastor and this is supposed to be a sermon at a church. So where again does it say that in the Bible? But you never see the doors open till you take the step. You've got it. Law, law, law. Where is the gospel? Where is the Bible? I mean, seriously. Come on, give him praise. Yeah. For what? What am I praising him for? You're not even teaching what his word says. You've got to take the you've got to take the chance. You know, so I ask you again, what's stopping you? If you keep on acting and believing and living and behaving in the way you do now, then I guess I've got to ask you, like Dr. Philwood, how's that doing for you? 
Someone has a dream in here of starting a business. Now's your time to step up and start to do it. And if they fulfill this dream to start a business, will that get them into heaven? Will that create a right standing before God? Why not now? When is it going to be if you don't? Without the possibility of failure, guys, you'll never know the joy of victory. Without the possibility of failure, you will never know the joy of victory. Again, this is not taught in the Bible. There are some of you in here that's been hurt by divorce. And you don't trust, you're wary of the opposite sex, you know. Come on, guys, step up, get on eHarmony. Have a go. You know, chat to that certain person in church. You know, do something. God has a plan for you. Well, you might say, well, you know what, David? They might refuse me. Well, they might, right? But refusal isn't fatal. How many of you have been refused here? Okay, we've all been refused, right? But unless you chance being refused, and it's been said, you know, a lot of the prettiest girls and prettiest women actually get, don't get with people because they never asked. Because guys are walking around saying, well, she'll not go with me, I'll get refused. Well, go and ask her, right? Some guy ought to have said, yeah, amen. All right. You know, don't listen to those who say to you, nobody from our family has gone to college. Don't listen to those that say, you know what, most marriages end in divorce, so, so don't waste your time. So if you go to college and you get married, uh, does that create a right standing before God? What was Jesus doing on the cross again? I, I'm confused about that, uh, Pastor Benson. Could you clear me up on that one? Don't listen to those that say, you know what, I know somebody who tried that and, oh, well, you really don't want to know. You know, don't listen to it. God has put potential in every single one of you. Potential for a great marriage, a great business, a great relationship with God. But we've got to chase. Really, where in the Bible does it say that God has put potential in me for a great marriage, a great business, a great job, or whatever? Where, where again is this great potential passage again? I mean, you said that God did this. Where in his word does it say that he did that? Anywhere? I mean... After it, let that dream start to come up again. Start to become passionate for something. Become passionate to live life on the edge, as it were, and not merely coasting along. Because I'll let you know, if you don't already, that life will catch up with you really quick, and the years will pass, and the decades will pass, and you'll look back and say, what? You know, it's too late. But I'd even say this to you then. There was a guy, 80 years old, called Moses, who God came to him and said, I want you to lead my people out of slavery and into a promised land and make them a nation called Israel. 80 years old. During that process, there was a guy in his mid-40s, a guy called Caleb. And as they were preparing to, to enter into this promised land, there was an area that was mountainous and some of the, the strongest of the enemies of Israel lived there. And he said, you know what? That's what I want. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my family's future in those mountains and I'm going to sort out those enemies. But as it happened, it didn't happen for another 40 years. When 40 years had gone by, Caleb is now 85 years old. And so... Wow, he's even twisting this passage. 
So you know what? They probably said to him, you know what, old guy? You need to be down here now, the Jordan River. You know, you can kind of just sit back. But he didn't say that at all. He said, listen, 40 years ago, I wanted that mountainous area. I wanted to sort out those enemies. Uh, you will not find this dialogue or monologue anywhere in the Bible. He's not actually teaching what the passage says. Don't believe me? Read the book of Joshua. And I'm going to do it now, 85 years old. I'm going to have that. I'm not going to let the dream die. Yeah, nowhere in the book of Joshua does it talk about Caleb saying, I'm not going to let the dream die. He's lying to you. Pastor Benson is absolutely flat out lying now. What dream have you let go, guys? It's time to stare it up again. You know, if your hurts, failures, disappointments of the past are greater than the dream that's lying within you, then the vision that you have, the dream that you have, has no future. Um, again, this statement is not found anywhere in the Bible at all. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled through the years that as you talk to them, their, their past has become an anchor. You don't have to talk to them very long before an event, a set of circumstances comes up and it's very plain that their past is an anchor, that they can't move on, they can't develop a new future because their past, the vision of their past is stronger than the vision of their future. And so they have no future. Don't call to mind your past, guys. Call out your future. Sit around your table and talk to your kids. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your husband, your wife. And let's plan together. Let's dream together. Let's do it together. Might we have some failures on the way? Maybe. But you know what? If you do, get up and go again. Because you've learned something that doesn't work. Keep going and have a dream to do it. In Romans 12 and verse 3, it says, God... Romans 12, verse 3, we are, this sermon is just about done. We're, we are literally just seconds away from it being finished. We are 42 minutes, 8 seconds into this sermon. And uh, he has yet to actually correctly teach God's word. And he just completely lied to us about the story of Caleb. Um, man, uh, you know, it's breathtaking to behold and to listen to. Uh, Romans chapter 12, this is a passage that I talk to con uh, talk about constantly, and that is is that over and over and over again, we see seeker-driven, purpose-driven, evangelical, and uh, pietistic pastors uh, completely ignore, uh, completely ignore the front end of the book of Romans and dive right over to 12, and you don't get to understand 12 unless you've gone through the first 11 chapters of Romans that focus in on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone on the cross. Over and again, Paul gives example after example of the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ, and our free salvation in uh, won by him on the cross. And only do we, after spending 11 chapters of focusing in on Christ and the gospel, then does Paul make the transition in verse 1. He says uh, of Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the mercies of God or in light of the mercies of God, which he just got done speaking about for 11 chapters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophesying in proportion to your faith, if service in, in our serving, uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who uh, does uh, acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let genuine, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Okay, that's Romans twelve three in context, and keep in mind the verses were added you know, later, much later. They, the verses were not added, the verse numbers were not added by the biblical authors. So when we read these things, we've got to read them in context so we know what's being talked about. Now let's see what Pastor Benson does with this verse. You've heard it, and you can pretty much figure out what it says in context. Let's see what he does with it. God has dealt to each one. The, a measure of faith. There isn't anybody in here today that God hasn't given you sufficient faith to be able to step out and trust him, to dream with God, because God is a dreamer himself. Wow. Holy guacamole. Seriously, What? To dream with God because God is a dreamer himself. Romans 12 doesn't say anything about God being a dreamer and us dreaming with God. Holy cow. Pastor Benton, Benson, do you think that Christ will find you faultless for mishandling God's word and perverting it in this way? Do you think that God doesn't notice what you're doing and is completely indifferent to you teaching false doctrine and a false gospel and making stuff up. This is exactly what it means in the Ten Commandments when it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is blasphemy. You are making things up about God and teaching it as if it, as if it comes from God himself and has his authority behind it. This is utter blasphemy. You are taking God's name in vain while in the pulpit. Pastor Benson, you need to repent and be forgiven for this. This is the type of sin that sends pastors to hell. He dreamed you into existence. He saw you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He called you by your name and you came forth into the world with a dream planted in you by God. Let it come out. Start to dream. Start to trust God. Step out over the line and watch what God will do. Because you know what? As, as we've seen so many times, you don't know what God will do until you step out with him. Let him open the doors before you. 
Is there anyone here that's got a dream stirring up within them? Is this, is this the new version of an altar call? You're not talking about, do you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit because of the sin in your life? But no, no, no. Do you feel a dream bubbling up and burbling within you? Did you come here pregnant with a dream? We've got an altar call for you. Let's pray a prayer for you so that dream can be birthed and you can dream along with God. Is there anyone here that's saying, you know what? I'm seeing something even as I'm sat here. Is there anyone that starts to get excited? Because uh, this, this is a classic. This is just classic deception. You know, God's just stirring in them right now. Well, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you that God would stir that dream, that you would rise up and you would decide to say yes. As for me and my... Oh, my goodness. It, it's not... <laughs> this is a new kind of decision theology. It's a decision to stir up the dream. dream that you would rise up and you would decide to say yes. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord's vision. We're going to serve the Lord's destiny. We're going to dream and dream big. Amen. <sighs> oh, wow. Folks, stop whatever you're doing right now and pray. Let's pray for Pastor Benson because what we just heard is utter blasphemy. And the last thing we want is for Pastor Benson and the people at Grace Creek Church in Longview, Texas to be judged by God and for God to hold this sin against them because they have they don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and haven't repented of this complete blasphemy. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up Pastor David Benson to you right now. He is deceived by the enemy. Satan has blinded him. And he's teaching from his pulpit blasphemous lies about you that are not found in your word. And he is deceived and deceiving other people and teaching things that ought not to be taught. He's tickling, itching ears and preaching about self rather than correctly handling your word and preaching your word and bringing people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And instead is teaching doctrines that are foreign and exotic that don't have their origin in your mind, Lord, but have their origin either in himself or in the devil's mind. We pray, Lord, that you would open his eyes, bring him to repentance, open the eyes of the people in his congregation and bring them to repentance, that they might turn, Lord, turn from these lies and false doctrines and turn to you in repentant faith, trusting in you for the forgiveness of their sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. 
What would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. It's official. God's word was never once correctly handled in that sermon. And so the answer to the question is, um, the question was, how does this sermon contribute to fulfilling the task of making disciples as Jesus has laid out that task for us in Matthew 28? The answer is it doesn't at all. In fact, it doesn't make disciples of Jesus at all. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.